Welcome to Snap Sessions, a podcast that looks at international artists and their creative pursuits, as well as interesting articles and broadcasts across the political spectrum. My name is Doug Nunn. I'm joined by voiceover colossus Ken Krause, by our behind-the-scenes tech meister Marshall Brown, and by our artist of the show, actor, writer, director, Dan O'Connor of Impro Theater in Los Angeles. Support for Snap Sessions is brought to you by listeners who contribute generously at our link, patreon.com forward slash snap sessions, or through the link in the Snap Sessions website, thesnapsessions.com, and also the link in our show notes. Thanks to our Snappus Maximus contributors, Ron Hochsprung and Rick and Henny Newman, and to our supportive snappers, Peter and Sheila Jowers, Dominie Jowers and John Bird, Gabriel Geiger, and Christine Samus. The Strange History of Vaccination From Medieval India to QAnon Misinformation Hey baby, has the virus got you afraid? Masks you've worn and home you've stayed If the pandemic has got you lonesome and blue Well honey, I've got the remedy for you I'm your vaccine daddy I've got the connections Vaccine daddy To get you your injections Vaccine daddy I'm gonna treat all your troubles Vaccine daddy And hey, my doses are doubles No more nights of isolation You're gonna dig my big inoculation Let's take a trip back 200 years to the beginning of the 19th century The time of Thomas Jefferson and Jane Austen And imagine ourselves living around 1810 or so. Living conditions were hugely different than today due to poor sanitation, lack of sewage management, clean drinking water or food inspection, crowded housing, and very little in the way of disease prevention. People died painfully, often in infancy or childhood, often from diseases like tuberculosis, pleurisy, typhus, cholera, and dysentery. The average lifespan was approximately 35 years. By 1900, according to the NIH National Library of Medicine, the average life expectancy had risen to 47.3 years. But communicable diseases like pneumonia, influenza, tuberculosis, diphtheria, smallpox, pertussis, measles, and typhoid fever were still leading causes of mortality. In the 120 years that have followed, vaccination, along with improved hygiene practices and the invention of antibiotics, has played an enormous role in eliminating much of the mortality from infectious diseases. A recent study concluded that since 1920 in the United States alone, vaccines have prevented 40 million cases of diphtheria, 35 million cases of measles, and a total of 103 million cases of childhood diseases. Not too shabby! A report from the World Health Organization states that today, vaccines prevent 2.5 million deaths per year. And because of lower morbidity and mortality, vaccination helps economic growth everywhere. Long, healthy lives are now recognized as a prerequisite for health, and wealth promotes health. Vaccines have made an enormous difference for our odd little species. It's just a vaccine. A conversation with my grandparents, born either at the end of the 19th century or the beginning of the 20th century, revealed stories of losing siblings to disease that they came to see as preventable within their lifespans. Between antibiotics and vaccines, medicine meant 
miracles. And they were historically correct. For a social animal like Homo sapiens, the world can be a very dangerous place. From the moment a baby pops out. Out of her mother's womb, Rachel Murphy is now surrounded by a new world filled with countless germs. Modern medicine will do what it can to protect her. Just a tiny little stick. Barely an hour old, Rachel gets her first shot against hepatitis B. This is the first of up to 35 inoculations she will get in the next six years of her life to fight 14 diseases. Public health doctors celebrate vaccines as one of medicine's shining achievements. Dr. Paul Offit. They've increased our lifespan by 30 years. Hib would cause 20 to 25,000 cases a year, gone. I mean, polio would, would paralyze, you know, tens of thousands of, of children every year, gone. I mean, diphtheria was the most common killer of, of, of teenagers in the 1920s, gone. I mean, you know, the vaccines, the benefit of vaccines is clear. Although this evidence of the positive power of vaccines and antibiotics is quite evident, there is also a large anti-vaccination movement that has developed over the past generation, mostly due to the influence of the internet and social media. It has grown by leaps and bounds due to controversies over the cause of autism and worries over additives to vaccines. We will examine these controversies but let's take a look first at how human beings developed vaccines and how we have benefited over time. Human history is scarred with stories of deadly germs destroying lives. 500 years ago, about one in three children died before the age of five. But then we began to fight back. Surprisingly, vaccination evolved from a type of traditional medicine at least 1,000 years ago. In India, when a wave of smallpox approached a town, there are tales of people doing something extraordinary. They lined up to actually buy the disease. Brahmin healers would take a cloth and rub the person's upper arm. Then they would scratch the skin, just enough to draw blood. Finally, they would apply dried smallpox scabs taken from patients who had survived the disease. Most people would get sick, but recover. From that point on, they were protected. Over 1,000 years ago, these Brahmins had observed one of the basic principles of immunization, that you rarely get infected twice. But you've got to give people credit. I mean, they, 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 they got it right. They knew that there was something going on that, that protected you. They just had no idea what it was or why. Fast forward around 700 years to Europe, where over 400,000 people were dying from smallpox every year. An English mother, Lady Mary Wortley Montague, wrote of seeing Turkish women deliberately inoculating their children with smallpox using a method similar to the Brahmins. The children played together all the rest of the day. And then the fever begins to seize them, and they keep their beds two days, very seldom three. And in eight days' time, they are as well as before their illness. 
Lady Mary successfully inoculated her own son and introduced the technique to England. People didn't understand why it worked, and it was never risk-free. But the smallpox death rate dropped from around 30% to 2%. Seventy years later, an English doctor named Edward Jenner took the next vital step. He demonstrated that deliberate infection with a mild, non-fatal disease called cowpox would protect against smallpox. He called his technique vaccination, from vacca, Latin for cow. Edward Jenner's observation caused us to eliminate a disease from the face of the earth, a disease that killed as many as 500 million people. Amazing, right? Medicine and microbiology slowly improved over the course of the 19th and early 20th centuries. But it was the battle against polio, or poliomyelitis, after World War II that kicked vaccinations into the realm of everyday life. A major nationwide effort, led by Dr. Jonas Salk of the University of Pittsburgh, led to a successful polio vaccine in 1955. This was followed by the oral Sabin vaccine in the early 1960s, and basically freed the United States, and eventually most of the rest of the world, from the fear of infantile paralysis. In the all-out fight against polio, led by the National Foundation for Infantile Paralysis, there were many years of struggle and heartbreak. In the 1950s, tens of thousands of American children were paralyzed by polio, and thousands of them died. It was one of the most feared diseases of the 20th century. Then, in 1955, came an announcement that changed history. A major medical hurdle was crossed with the discovery by Dr. Jonas Salk of the anti-polio vaccine. Thanks to the injectable Salk vaccine and later the oral Sabin vaccine, polio rates plummeted by 99%. The disease largely vanished from the U.S. Polio was indeed a killer and is a strong memory from my youth. I went to school with kids who had polio and Americans still had a memory of Franklin Delano Roosevelt, himself a polio victim, advocating for the March of Dimes. But polio was not the only virulent disease killing thousands. Measles, mumps, chickenpox, and diphtheria were all diseases that were dangerous to children when we were kids, and all so easily spread. Let's take measles, which most doctors thought had been eradicated in this country until it reappeared in this century. A Brooklyn doctor talks of his surprise when it reappeared in 2013. The first case that, that I saw was a 12-month-old girl that uh, came into the office with mom because of a rash. And I'm looking at this child, examining this child, and I'm like, this can't be. <laughs> this child looks like she has measles. I've never actually seen measles, but uh, I've seen them in textbooks, never in real life. So I was a little taken aback. Three or four days later, perhaps, we had another case. And then the next day, another case, and then another one. And it just it started getting overwhelming. Like, wait a second. The Department of Health tried to stop the spread. The thing about measles is it's droplet spread. So, for example, you know, your respiratory secretions if someone coughs. But it's also airborne. So the virus can sort of hang out in the air for up to two hours. One case was traced back to an infected person taking the elevator up to an apartment, shedding the virus along the way. 
The measles virus usually infects the cells of the throat and lungs, but it can also survive in the air and linger on objects. You don't have to cough, you just have to breathe. It's the worst kind of contagion. It's airborne. This measles outbreak in New York in 2013 was indeed a shock to a city that thought the disease had been eradicated. Another illness thought to have been vanquished is whooping cough, for which babies are usually vaccinated at two months. Watching an infant suffer from whooping cough or pertussis can be truly scary. Whooping cough, or pertussis as it's formerly known, can be life-threatening for babies. Whooping cough is caused by a really nasty bacteria called Bordetella pertussis, and it produces a toxin and it attacks the airways and causes a really nasty bronchitis. Uh, and they get really sticky, thick phlegm that they can't shift. And that they try to, and that causes them to cough. And the cough needs to be really, really vigorous but they often, it's not very effective and then sometimes they stop breathing. And if they stop breathing for long enough, they go red in the face at first. And then sometimes if it's an extended period of not breathing, they can go blue and that can be very, very frightening. A generation ago, whooping cough was very rarely seen in developed countries. In 2012, after a generation of the anti-vaxxer movement, there were 50,000 cases in the US and 20 deaths. People without boosters can get it as well. Watching two documentaries with young children suffering from whooping cough was enough to persuade me of the necessity of vaccinating against this frightening illness. Human beings have very powerful immune systems, and vaccinations are very effective ways to alert our immune systems to hit the barricades to oust an attacker. To understand how vaccines work, we first need to understand immunity. Sir Gustav Nossel is a world-renowned immunologist. Immunity is a wonderful natural defense system of the human body. It depends on the white cells of the blood to rapidly, rapidly, rapidly get you protected against the disease. Imagine millions of immune cells, such as white blood cells, all on the lookout for specific germs. If they spot something foreign, like flu, they prepare to fight. When that flu bug enters your body, the white cells like to move in on it, and they get a bit angry. The immune cells arm themselves, and then replicate, creating an army of clones. Then, launching powerful germ-seeking agents called antibodies, they tag the germs for disposal. Once the germ is removed, the immune army disbands. But they leave behind memory cells. Their job is to remember the invader and to sound the alarm if it ever appears again. When we're born, we're not yet very mature in terms of our immune system. So if an infection strikes a little infant, then there's a great vulnerability. It's the tiniest ones that need the most protection. The recommended vaccine schedule is designed to close this window of vulnerability. Some people believe that you don't need to vaccinate your child because you've got such a beautiful and good immune system. They forget that these bugs that surround us have been co-evolving with us 
sometimes for millions of years. And in some respects, they're cleverer than us. They have worked out ways of evading the immune system unless you pre-arm it. So putting it bluntly, the white cells mightn't be fast enough or smart enough if we hadn't whipped them along by a prior immunization. A vaccine, in effect, sends in an imposter, a weakened or dead part of the germ, just enough to be recognized. The immune cells mount the defense. Because the threat is low, they quickly disband. But the all-important memory cells have been created. The immune system is now prepared for the real germ. Then there's the all-important concept of herd immunity. Remember, as we human beings are social animals, we don't go into battle against disease alone. We need herd immunity, i.e. a high enough percentage of our group must be immune to the illness to help us keep up our defenses. In the case of the all-powerful measles virus, that herd immunity must be 95%. Vaccines do more than protect individuals. They can protect entire communities. The 2013 measles outbreak in New York hit hard and fast, but remained within the Brooklyn area. Why didn't it spread to the other 8 million people in the city? The virus was in circulation, even though it often wasn't obvious. And it was being carried by people who often had no idea they were infected. The vast majority of people who came into contact with the virus had protection. They were vaccinated. There's two things that matter for whether or not I'm going to get sick. One is, if I bump into somebody who has the disease, am I protected against it or not? But the other piece, and the more important piece, is the chance I will bump into somebody in the first place who has this disease. And you can think of this as these sort of concentric circles of people. And the less the disease exists in my circle or the next circle or the next circle, the safer I am. It's known as herd immunity. And it protects everyone, including young babies and people who can't be vaccinated for medical reasons. This all sounds like well-researched and well-reasoned medical advice, born of hundreds of years of scientific inquiry. But suddenly, in the last 30 years, we have the explosion of the Internet. And the spread of disinformation. Effectively, we have seen expertise devalued in the face of opinion and conspiracy theories. But there are many parents who ask reasonable questions that seem to deserve thoughtful answers. Jennifer Margulis, a writer with a PhD in English, is the mother of four children. When my daughter was born in 1999, the nurse bustled in with her tray and said, OK, it's time for your hepatitis B vaccine. And I 
looked at my daughter and I looked at the nurse and I said, isn't hepatitis B a sexually transmitted disease? And I said, why am I supposed to vaccinate my newborn baby against a sexually transmitted disease? And the nurse got really mad. Margulis went on to research and write about vaccines and in 2009 published a long article about the vaccine debate in Mothering Magazine, a magazine promoting a natural lifestyle. Why are we giving children so many vaccines? They get four times the number of vaccines than I got when I was a child growing up in the 70s. As a parent, I would rather see my child get a natural illness and contract that the way that illnesses have been contracted for at least 200,000 years that Homo sapiens have been around. I'm not afraid of my children getting chickenpox. There are reasons that children get sick. Getting sick is not a bad thing. Jennifer is a well-educated mother of four children and does indeed ask questions worth asking. Yet much of the anti-vaxxer movement is led by less well-intentioned people. And sadly, many anti-vaxxers are following discredited science. The science that gave the movement its original impetus was a 1998 article by British gastroenterologist Andrew Wakefield in the medical journal The Lancet. He reported on 12 children with gastrointestinal problems, eight of whom developed symptoms of autism following an MMR shot. Wakefield's theory was that the measles vaccine inflamed the intestines, causing harmful proteins to leak into the bloodstream, eventually damaging the brain and causing autism. Measles, mumps and rubella given together may be too much for the immune system of some children to handle. Clearly, for the vast majority, it is protective. And we must emphasize that it, it is just a small cohort of children, we don't know how large, but who appear to have developed the syndrome. News of Wakefield's provocative Lancet article spread across the world, creating fear that measles shots might cause autism. There was a dramatic decline in the coverage of young children uh, with uh, measles uh, vaccines. Autism expert Eric Fambon was working in London at the time. There were areas, like in urban areas, where it was even lower than 80%. And in Ireland in particular, vaccine coverage fell to close to 70%. And there was a big uh, outbreak of measles occurring as a result of that fear. It turns out Dr. Andrew Wakefield's original study, published in the respected Lancet magazine in 1999, and much quoted ever since, turned out to be a study based on only 12 children. Hardly a large sample. It has since been debunked in numerous and rather massive studies of whole national populations. One country renowned for its epidemiology is Denmark. Unlike the U.S., Danish authorities collect demographic and health data routinely on the entire population in a series of national registers. They know when every child was born, when every child was vaccinated, and when every case of autism was diagnosed. It's sort of a paradise for epidemiologists because we don't have to work to, to, to collect this data. It is, it is available to us. Anders Havid and colleagues at the Staten Serum Institute analyzed data on all the Danish children born between 1991 and 1998, over half a million. They compared two groups, those who had received the MMR triple shot and those who hadn't. Then they counted the cases of autism in each group and calculated the autism rate. They found no difference. Children who didn't get the shot had the same risk of developing autism as those who did. 
The team published the findings in the New England Journal of Medicine. Other studies carried out by researchers in Sweden, Britain, Finland, and the U.S. also found no association between MMR and autism. Additional evidence came from Japan. The Japanese changed their vaccine schedule in 1993, replacing the MMR triple shot with three separate vaccinations. But following the change, autism rates did not fall. In fact, they appeared to rise, thus making the triple shot an unlikely cause of autism. The Danish team now went on to investigate the second theory, the mercury preservative thimerosal. It turned out that in Denmark, there was a simple way to test this as well. In Denmark, since the 70s, only one vaccine has contained uh, thimerosal, and that was a ptosis vaccine. It contained thimerosal until May, June uh, 92. Then the same vaccine continued, but uh, without thimerosal. Havid and colleagues found that children who were given pertussis vaccines with thimerosal before 1992 had identical autism rates as children who received mercury-free vaccines after that date. We did not find any association between being vaccinated with the, the thimerosal-containing vaccine and, and, and the risk of autism. Other studies in the U.S., the U.K. and Canada also found no association between autism and thimerosal. So we, we, we essentially spent time and energy solving a problem that never existed. It's like spending years fighting to get marshmallows out of Lucky Charms because a few people think minions can choke to death on them. <laughs> For a start, marshmallows dissolve and minions don't exist. And if they did, I would want them to choke to death because those little fuckers will murder us. Open your eyes! Seriously, though, contemporary research on autism is finding that it is likely to be genetic in origin, and researchers are getting somewhere. Let's listen to UCLA Med School's Dr. Daniel Geschwind. Today, scientists like Daniel Geschwind are making dramatic progress in finding the real causes of autism. The story that's emerging is written in our DNA. It's really extraordinary. Identifying the genetic causes is really important because it gives us an anchor, a place to start. We know autism can run in families, but it took a revolution in DNA sequencing technology to allow scientists to compare thousands of genes in people with and without autism and to pinpoint specific mutations. Some of these gene mutations are inherited, but many are new, as in Dravet syndrome. Many of these genes play a role in brain development and in the way brain cells communicate. That can give us enormous clues about the onset of autism, where it begins, how it begins, and hopefully how to treat it. So it seems like for an educated public, willing to listen to reason, there are solutions to autism being researched. Vaccination is not causal for autism, although it can on occasion help to trigger things like fevers. But this simple and straightforward explanation is having trouble cracking through the noise that is the internet and social media where there are more pseudo-experts per capita than anywhere else in human history. And for some people, the language of science itself is hard to comprehend. Let's listen to MIT science writer Seth Manukian explain this quandary. There are almost two languages here. There's the language of science, and then there's English. 
And in the language of science, you have these signifiers, like to the best of our knowledge, as far as we know. Based on the available scientific uh, uh, evidence. Because you can't say anything with 100%, you can't prove a negative. And so when scientists speak in their language and the rest of us translate that into English, it sounds like they're saying something very different than they're saying. Based on what we know right now, we don't think that there is an association. But that's not saying with 100% certainty there isn't one. That is saying that based on the evidence that we have right now, we don't think that there is one. Either because the reporter doesn't understand what's actually going on, uh, or because they're looking to generate a story, they then take that and make it seem as if the scientist is saying, I think there's a possibility that vaccines do cause autism, when in fact that's not it at all. And now we are living in the age of bogus conspiracy theories from QAnon and the age of Trump. It is no coincidence that a man who believes that he won two popular votes in a row, when in fact he lost them by a total of 10 million votes, and that President Obama was born in Kenya, is pushing dangerous misinformation about vaccinations. In a time when we are facing the worst pandemic in a century, we are also being overwhelmed with the purposeful spread of disinformation and lies. The outbreak of the coronavirus pandemic in 2020 created a perfect storm for new conspiracy theories to take root. The pandemic overwhelmed government institutions, creating enormous fear and economic uncertainty. Lockdown life also created super-spreader conditions for paranoia, with Americans searching for answers in online forums where unreal ideas circulated unchecked. New converts were then able to spread these ideas in real life to their pods of close family and friends under lockdown. This mass delusion of social media conspiracy theories itself constitutes a public health crisis. As the WHO put it last fall, an infodemic is endangering countries' ability to stop the pandemic adding that misinformation costs lives and that a lack of trust in science will cause immunization campaigns to not meet their targets and the virus will continue to thrive. Let's let John Oliver take us home with some truth on the whack-a-mole nature of this whole debate. And those comments will link to the hidden truths about vaccines and demand to know why I didn't look into them. And you know what? We did look into a lot of them. And the problem is, I could go point by point by point and be talking for hours tonight, and this will still never end. It's like whack-a-mole. As one theory goes down, another pops up. And I kind of get the insistence that there must be a link. Uh, The age children are supposed to get the MMR vaccine happens to be the same age that diagnosable signs of autism can begin to appear. But correlation is not causation. That is what scientific studies are for. And remember, they are really clear that link is not there. And the problem with spending more and more time and money trying to prove that link is that it takes resources away from studying actual causes and treatments. Just just listen to the mother of one child with autism who started a foundation precisely because she wanted to find out the causes. We have dozens of studies I think we were right to look at whether vaccines might be a cause of autism, but there comes a point where there's so much evidence, none of which shows any link between vaccines and autism, that you have to say, enough. Yeah, that's right. 
It's like that Einstein quote you sometimes see on the internet. The definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. Except Einstein didn't say that because, and it seems I cannot stress this enough, memes aren't facts. (laughs) Mr. Biden, bring my vaccine. Protected from COVID-19 Tell me the trick To how I might earn a Fix of that magic Pfizer or Moderna Biden Give me a poke They call you sleepy But you're pretty woke I'm so tired of quarantine Mr. Biden Bring my vaccine Thanks for listening to Snap Sessions. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe to us on Patreon. We depend on the support of listeners like you. I'm here with Dan O'Connor, who is an old friend of mine and one of my improv buddies. I consider myself an old blocking back for Dan, Dan being a cruising tailback. We've known each other for years, going back to the late 80s when I first met Dan. We actually toured together way back, I think it was 87, Dan, in Germany, 88, in in Germany. So that was our first probably performing time together. It's great to have you here, Dan O'Connor. I welcome you. Thanks, Doug. Thanks for having me. Yeah, 88 when I was just a blushing ingenue. You were just a blushing ingenue, but also a spicy dude, man. You were you were ready to go. <laughs> so we'll get right to the core. You're our first real child actor guy, I think, that I've interviewed on the show. You're a fourth generation San Franciscan, and that takes you way back, almost to the gold rush, I think, probably way back then. Uh, before the gold rush, I think, yeah. And you now live in Hollywood. I'm, I'm not going to accuse you of being a traitor or anything, because I know your heart is with the San Francisco Giants and the 49ers and the Golden State Warriors, etc. So, you started acting around the age of eight. You did a job with ACT, the American Conservatory Theater in San Francisco. Tell us about growing up in San Francisco and how you landed your first acting job. Well, I started at the Young Conservatory in San Francisco at ACT. Basically, my brother Anthony and I used to put on shows for my uh, Irish grand aunts and uh, uncle and anybody else who would sit still when we were really little. And my mother had a friend who managed the Capizio in San Francisco, Ina, a very tall Lithuanian woman. And she was like, well, you have to put him, put him in acting school because he's such a ham. And so this was around eight years old. And she asked me, you know, do you want to do that? And I, yes, uh, I, I do. So you had to go to pay for acting classes at the Young Conservatory. You had to go and interview and they were very serious. And they were like, we, we only want people who want to do this for a living. And I was eight. And uh, yeah, sure. I started taking class there as a kid and the main company, the American Conservatory Theater would use kids from the Young Conservatory. So I think my first equity job was when I was 11. I I became a union actor at 11. And I started doing television thanks to a a kid friend of mine who ironically was too old (laughs) 
to do it. Remember uh, KPU, the radio station in yeah. the city? Mm -hmm. He had pitched a kids radio show, and I was part of that, along with Tracy Burns. Then uh, KRON decided that they wanted to do a kids television version, Kids Watch. And Tracy and I went along. And unfortunately, my friend Paul Weiner was too old, even though it was his idea. And uh, we started doing television. So I think I became an AFTRA union member at like 12. And then I was doing voiceover for Harcourt Brace Jovanovic. In fact, uh, I joked with my mom, I made more money when I was 12 than I did when I was 22. <laughs> That's great. And when you were you were doing this um, early on, this Kids Watch show, you were actually a cub reporter, right? Wasn't it like a kids-oriented news show on KRON? Yeah, and I was... I was the man on the street. So they would send me into schools all over the Bay Area, some which were very nice and some which were really challenging. I remember somewhere in Marin, like the kids sort of turned on us and I was going, this this is not good. Uh, but I also got to experience really amazing things. Like I went and interviewed kids at the Black Panthers uh, school in Oakland. And I'm pretty sure maybe I've, this is, it's apocryphal and I've made it up in my head, but I, I remember meeting Angela Davis, but I also was 12. So I may not have met Angela. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it was a very interesting, you know, job. Uh, it's, uh, for a kid to have. Really, uh, you know, quite an experience uh, back then. And you say you were making bucks, too, which is which is kind of classic. You also uh, worked on the streets of San Francisco. There's a great line in your bio on your website. Uh, you did your first professional jobs were with Carl Malden, Luciano Pavarotti, and Rudolf Nureyev, respectively, in streets of San Francisco, the San Francisco Opera, and the Royal Ballet of Canada. And that's pretty cool, Dan. <laughs> yeah, because of Young Conservatory, anybody who was needing young kid actors would just go to the Young Conservatory. So I got to skateboard past Carl Malden, you know, when I was 12, I think, 13. And I was an extra in, I think, five different operas at the Opera House. So Pavarotti, Joan Sutherland, all of these huge operas, which were fantastic as a kid. And then when the Royal Ballet of Canada came through, they wouldn't bring kids on the road. They would hire the kids here. And I actually was in Giselle and Don Juan in hell or whatever. I can't remember. But Nuriev actually would back into me, which was really weird. There was a procession of priests and choir boys who were moving across the stage as Nuriev was dancing. And for some reason, he backed into me, which in hindsight made no sense why they would have the smallest person on stage be part of the choreography. But, uh, <laughs> and he knocked me, knocked me on my ass uh, in the wings. I was, you know, I would go and watch the ballet and he came off stage one night, knocked me down, just knocked me over, didn't say a word. There was some guy standing there with a tray with his deodorant and extra toe shoes and all that stuff for him. So I can say that Rudolf Nureyev, you know, basically body blocked me. <laughs> that is a classic thing to be able to say. That's really good. At the time, you're being a kid, you're being a teenager, and you're getting all this acting work. Was it kind of weird to balance it, or were you just totally into being a young performer? It was weird. At ACT, you had to wear tights. The, the male actors had to wear tights. So I remember my sort of middle school girlfriend, you know, girlfriend in big air quotes. Anyway, she was like, why do you have a pair of tights in your bag? Which was, you know, it's incredibly embarrassing when you're 12 years old. But 
it opened up a whole world because part of the thing about the Young Conservatory, which Ross and Luann Graham ran at the time, who kind of became my stage parents, the other kids that went there were all from all over the Bay Area. And and it was a a diverse economy, shall we say, because there were kids who were from Pacific Heights and that side of town. And Noe Valley at the time was, you know, very working class, what have you. It, It wasn't the yuppie McMansion place that it is uh, right. to a little bit now. Kind of an ethnic but, um, neighborhood, too. At the time, there's a lot of Italians and Irish people living there, too, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a bit more blue collar. But I got to hang out with guys who went to school in different parts of town. I ended up playing lacrosse for a private high school because they needed more people. It opened up a whole other part of the city, which was not available to me. And then here you are, you're coming on to 18, getting out of high school, and you applied to Weber Douglas. It's a dramatic arts school in London, one of the most famous ones. You got into Weber Douglas, and uh, you had already done some Shakespeare, you had already done some Ibsen. What was the audition like? And tell us about your time at Weber Douglas, because, I mean, I met people when I was working in London who had been to Weber Douglas. It was a it's highly prestigious place. It, yeah, it was. Just a side note, Doug, that it closed about 10 years ago because it it turned 100 years old and the real estate value of the building was, because it was in Gloucester Road, which is right next to South Ken and a very, very pricey part of town. And they sold the building and folded it into Central School of Drama. So now officially Weber Douglas doesn't exist anymore except at Central. Uh, Yeah, I auditioned. I went to New York when I was 17. First time I'd ever been anywhere by myself. Yeah, I went to, to... to New York at 17, auditioned for Lambda, Weber Douglas, and RADA, and didn't get into RADA, which was what I was hoping for. That's the Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts. Yes. Mm -hmm. And it turned out to be a blessing because Weber Douglas, where I ended up going, was... It was a blue-collar drama school, if there is such a thing. It felt much more hard scrabble and and not pretentious, mostly. Yeah, and the first three months I lived in London, I was a nanny. Somebody in San Francisco had helped set me up with this family in London, which was someday I'll write the book. It was miserable. It was very Dickensian. I was basically a slave cleaning a five-story home in London and taking care of a kid. But the experience, Doug, to answer your question, the experience was pretty amazing. You know, it took me three or four months before I really knew what was going on. And I had just turned 18. I didn't know much. And when I moved out of the the nice place where I was the nanny, I moved to Finsbury Park, which at that time was pretty rough. And I slept on a floor. There was ice on the inside of the window. But I was, in, in spite of all of that, I was pretty happy because it was the first time I was on my own. It was one of those English places where if you wanted to take a bath in the morning, you had to pump 50 pence pieces into the meter. So, you know, I was living off Campbell's soup. It was very hard on one side, but at the same time, I was getting to do what I love to do, which was act. And... I was basically as growing up. It was a, it was a pretty incredible experience, just from the standpoint of maturing and becoming somebody. Were you fascinated by the curriculum? Was it really hard to compete? You know, uh, there were no academics. You know, we had lighting and stage management courses and things like that. And I, I have a certificate from the British Society of Fight Directors. Uh, that's my college degree. <laughs> I didn't find the curriculum 
difficult. What I found difficult was I was always a very instinctual actor when I was a kid, you know, and I, by that time, you know, I'd been acting basically for nine years and I was always very instinctive and kind of like the Marine Corps, I felt that an English drama school training sort of strips you down and then builds you back up again. It made me question my instinct. It made, you know, that sort of thing when you get into early adulthood, where when you discover anxiety and self-doubt, because up until that point, I was fearless. Like if somebody, there's been, you know, students of mine, or when I've talked to high school students who've asked about that experience, I always say, go to an American school first learn how to build a set or paint flats or whatever before you go and subject yourself to a British training. Because my feeling was it took me a number of years to get back to being instinctive. Of course, I learned a great deal, but the sort of schizophrenic nature of that, of being one type of actor who is being forced to do something else. But when I, by the time I got out of there, I thought I'm ready for anything at this point. And I actually wish I had gone to a four-year school because I think I would have been really ready. Instead, I, I came back to San Francisco and I was like, okay, uh, I, you know, ready to conquer the world. But then I had the same challenge that everybody at 2021 does, which is you're still trying to find your footing. Well, you came back to San Francisco, and this is a similar experience that I had when I was got out of Berkeley. You just went right back to working class jobs. You basically tried all kinds of stuff. You were actually an ice delivery guy at one point. Tell us about return to San Francisco and then stumbling your way towards uh, theater sports. Well, when I came back, and this is where ACT was not my friend, because all the roles at the major theaters were being taken by MFA students. You know, it was very difficult to get good stage acting work in San Francisco uh, that paid. So you had to have a day gig. And I was an ice man for three years. I was a bus boy. I was a breakfast maitre d' at a downtown hotel. I was the mini bar replenisher, which is probably the worst job I've ever had. And, <laughs> and that's saying something because my first job at 14 was working in a print house down by where the ballpark is on Townsend or Brennan or something like that. And they used to lower me into gigantic presses to clean them with kerosene. Wow. Uh, it was a, it was a really, really hard job. It was my first job. But replenishing the minibar was mind-numbing and horrible. And yeah, but I was an Iceman for three years. I did all sorts of things. I did demolition work down by uh, the Galleria. I worked as a bar back, busboy. Yeah, I did all sorts of stuff. And then I got my first professional gig at Shakespeare Santa Cruz doing The Tempest, which was amazing because, I, you know, you got paid to rehearse. You lived in Santa Cruz on campus. You got paid to be an actor. And it was summertime. And yeah. I turned 21. So yeah. I went from this sort of really hard few years into a pretty good gig, but then went right back to blue collar work yeah. after, after that. And then you got interested, or you, I used our, the verb stumble upon, uh, improv, about middle-late 80s, right? When you uh, they did some theater sports workshops, Rebecca Stockley, who's still with Bay Area Theater Sports, a longtime artistic director and an excellent coach. She did a big workshop, and you were one of the first people involved. Tell us about getting into theater sports. Well, I was doing plays, I worked at the One Act Theater, you know, which was on Mason. I worked 
you know, all these little places. And one of the directors for one of the shows, Sylvia, said there's this thing called theater sports. They're doing a workshop the next two weekends and you should do it. And she actually brought me to a party, I think at William Hall's uh, apartment, I think on California or maybe one of the Bologna brothers. I can't remember who, but I got basically thrown in the deep end with those guys. And they said, oh, yeah, yeah, you should come. And I think they made me a deal because I, at that point I, I had no money. And they had brought Rebecca Stockley down from Seattle. She was living in Seattle and she taught two weekend workshops me, uh, Brian Lohman, William Hall, the Bolognias, you know, Richard DePel, Drew Letchworth, and John X. Hart. And Joe Polino was part of that. Longtime voiceover artist, Joe Paulino. Yeah. I worked with him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there was probably, you know, 10 other people in, involved in, in that first go round. But when we did a show after the second weekend, this was when 25NS in San Francisco first opened up, New Conservatory Theater, that 200-seater or whatever their big space is, uh, on that Monday night, sold out. You know, it was just word of mouth. My mother couldn't get in. My mom couldn't get into the show. (laughs) But from there, we decided we were going to start Bay Area Theater Sports and immediately set about doing that. So it was fantastic timing, right time, right place for me, because I was 22 23. And now I had to learn how to teach. Now I was part of building a theater company. By the time I did move to LA, I had been teaching for a little bit. I had, I was a little bit more self-possessed in a good way. And it completely opened up the world. I had done improv at ACT as a kid and I had done it at Attic Theater, which was the theater company I was involved in, in high school. So I was not unfamiliar with improv, uh, but to be able to do it with grown people, and to be able to do it at that level, because, you know, very quickly, there were people like Barbara Scott involved, Regina Saizi, Rafe Chase. There was some real heavy hitters. And Brian Lohman at that point had also been doing it professionally with adults. And he, I think, is a few years older than I am. So I got a really great MFA in improv in 1986. And then within a few years, you decided to make the big jump, which is often the classic case for a San Francisco actor. I guess I got to move to L.A. And here you are. You're the epitome for me of a San Francisco guy. And I I, I say that as a massive compliment because I consider myself a NorCal person. But you made the big leap. You went down to L.A. and, uh, you know, I got to try to be an actor down there. And you also then formed beginnings of Los Angeles theater sports, LATS. Tell us about that transition. And that's kind of a major ambitious thing for a guy in his middle 20s. Well, I, uh, the my girlfriend at the time, Janice, when I was in San Francisco, she had lived in LA and she was like, you know, we should move to LA. And, and I, you know, I, I guess I was 24. I don't know. I, whatever I was, I, I was not booking a lot of work in San Francisco. It was really hard. I was unable to make a living. When she said that and I was, okay, let's let's do it. And I got down here. We moved to Santa Monica. And for about five, six months, I was kind of bumming around. And I had horrible telemarketing jobs. And just, it was not good. But I ended up kind of meeting a whole bunch of expat San Franciscans. And, you know, we'd watch Niner games together. And I went to a Dodgers-Giants game 
and met Forrest Brakeman, who was, you know, from San Carlos, diehard San Francisco guy. And we got to talking. Also, Ellen Idelson, who I'd done, who had been part of BATS up in San Francisco, she had come back from school at Harvard and was living in L.A., which is where she grew up. So the three of us decided that we wanted to you know, bring down a couple coaches from San Francisco, Rafe Chase and Barbara Scott, and start this up. Oh, there's a little side note, Doug. I don't know if you know the story. I was on tour, the, that same tour with you in 88, and Brian Loman and I and Joshua did a theater sports, maybe not, Joshua may not have been involved, I can't remember, but Brian and I did a show at the Canal Cafe in London, and in the audience with Jeff Weissman and his then wife, Kim Ray, and they uh, had an improv group back in L.A. And he said to me after the show, he goes, well, can you teach us this stuff? And Forrest had been their director. So there was all this sort of synergy around it. So his group, the Flying Penguins, kind of became the base, the core group of LATS. And LATS just grew exponentially from 88 to 94 we went from nothing to having 88 people in the main company and 150, 200 students. And yeah, yeah. it just blew up. One of the things that impressed me so much about LATS when I started coming down and um, seeing what you guys are doing in the soon thereafter, 95 or so, you had so much depth. You had uh, you could have fielded three teams before there was a weak guy on the stage. It was very impressive to see. And also the workshops were very lively. And you had a variety of coaches. It was really a fun thing. Soon thereafter, you also had a lot of people interested in developing a long form ideas. I think Forrest Brakeman came up with Triple Play, maybe, which yeah. was you did three different genres over the course of the evening and you'd trade first act of each, second act of each, and so on. And then when I came down to live down there, I think it was in 99, you were wanted to do Shakespeare Unscripted and you and Brian were sort of forming this core. And you asked me to help produce. And I remember thinking to myself, wow, this is totally ambitious. And you got that Globe Theater, which is in West Hollywood, and which is a recreation of Shakespeare's Globe. Tell us about the transitioning to long form and the people you worked with and the kind of stuff you were interested in in long form improv. Theater sports, which for, for those of your listeners who don't know what it is, is basically short form games. But a lot of the games that we loved were musical or stylistic. So much so that if I was playing a night of theater sports, I would always ask to do some sort of style thing. I, I think around 94, 93, Forrest was like, well, we should do more of this. And he came up with Triple Play, which was the first, it was a, a playwright, a film director, a composer. So it might be Tennessee Williams, uh, Spielberg and Sondheim. And you do first act of each, each one, two, three first acts, one, two, th uh, three second acts, take a, take an intermission and then do the third acts. And we loved it. In fact, we were very cocky early on. We would just ask the audience for suggestions. And we finally realized we needed to rehearse because we were getting things that were you know, that most Sam Shepard, you know, only half the people in the show knew who Sam Shepard was. I think one of the weirdest ones we did was Gabriel Garcia Marquez 
Hal Ashby and the Weavers. You know, it was, <laughs> it was we we, we, got, we got deep deep in the wood with regards to genre, but we liked it so much. And then when Brian moved down, you know, we started talking about Shakespeare. That was the other thing. That was to your bench quote, Doug. One of the reasons why we had such a deep bench is because people wanted to live in L.A. if they wanted to be a professional actor. So we'd get improvisers from New York, improvisers from Seattle, improvisers from San Francisco or San Diego or Texas or wherever, and they would become part of the community. So it made for a really... A really deep bench. And in fact, we were very ambitious when we did Shakespeare that that won at the, the Globe. I think there were 16 people in the cast. It made it, you know, this huge thing. In fact, I think you got killed... I don't know how many times before I, I got killed. I got killed a lot before intermission. I think I had the league leading record. In fact, one time Richard Sakai came to see me. My friend is the producer of The Simpsons and Gracie Films. He goes, okay, Nan, I can come tonight. I said, all excited. Sakai's coming. In the second scene, Brian, who was already the protagonist, he, he was on a boat and there was me and McShane, who, was all, who had also had a big part. And Brian had to kill somebody. He turned around with a knife and he he looked at both me and McShane and he threw the knife and I knew it was my knife. <laughs> I was gone. Sakai goes, Nan, you died in the second scene. You, I came all this way. 16 people on stage. It gave you a lot of extras, which was kind of fun. It gave us a lot of extras and it gave us a, a robust real play. I think that was the beginning of this sort of real play. Like we asked people to dress in, basically there was wardrobe for the first time. I think that was the first time we started really doing wardrobe. We had done some scripted material, but this was the first time we were getting into sort of longer stuff. I mean, an example, one of the highlights and one of the moments where I thought, oh, this is something we got, we have to keep doing. We had one show maybe you remember this, where Floyd Van Boskirk, who had been Rebecca Stockley's teacher. So Floyd was in LA now. So there's, we have basically theater sports is godfather of the West Coast in the company. And a very funny man as well. A very funny man of tr tremendous musician. And so the, you know, I mean, the starting lineup was amazing, but this was a, a Shakespeare play uh, in that run and Floyd just couldn't get in. He couldn't get into the show. There was, and that was one thing that we were learning, which was it's not about being on stage, it's about serving the story. Floyd did this thing, which is even after the intermission, there was no place for him to get in, no place for him to get in. We had referenced the king, the king, the king. And in the last five minutes of the show, Floyd, there was a way to sneak around and get behind the audience. He came through the audience, and the other 15 people on stage all fell to their knees at once because the king had returned. And the audience was losing their mind because they knew this guy was in the show, but they hadn't seen him, hadn't seen him. It, that, that show did a couple of things. One, I always, when I'm teaching, I always talk about the patience that Floyd had not to enforce himself on the show. And the second thing, which is that the story told us what to do. And we listened to the story rather than, oh, I got to get some time on stage. And from that, we started doing more and more experimentation with uh, stuff. And that's that's what led to the creation of Impro Theater probably five, 
six years later that what ended up happening was we all decided that's what we wanted to do. And we'll we'll come back to that shortly because Impro Theater is, is a chapter by itself. Also during this time period, you're working as an actor and as an aspiring sitcom director. You had parts in Seinfeld, which I saw recently again. Hopefully you got your um, SAG check for that one. <laughs> Vegas, Raising Hope, Malcolm in the Middle. You were a regular ensemble player on The Tonight Show, as I recall. There was a group of you. And you all Law and Order. Tell us about the, some of your favorite TV parts. My, my favorite thing, and it's a small part on Seinfeld, but the way I got it was really fun. My agent called me the night before and said, we're sending you the script uh, or the sides to play a cop in this um, Seinfeld episode. Be there tomorrow at 9.30. So I go, I'm there at 9.30. There's four guys. I go in an audition and Seinfeld and Larry David really liked that I took one of the lines that wasn't a laugh line and made it funny. I was just happy to meet the two, two of them, specifically Seinfeld. Anyway, they come out after all four of us have gone. They say, you guys can go. Dan, go to Western Costume. They'll hook you up. Come back here. I went and got my cop. I was a rookie cop. I got my cop stuff. I came back. I shot it. I was done by 2.30 in the afternoon. I, I think Andy Ackerman was the director, but he I don't think he ever really talked to me. But Seinfeld, I had this big cop hat on and Seinfeld said, Dan, take the hat off so the folks at home can see you and know who you are. I was so like, thanks. Thank you so much. <laughs> but anyway, that, that was one of my favorite jobs just because I got to meet him and I, I do really think he's amazing and and very funny and also that show no matter where you are on the planet if you say you're on Seinfeld oh yeah but yeah I did I did tons of different stuff I uh ended up directing single camera comedies that were hybrid because they needed a guy who'd been a writer I at, during this time I was also I wrote on a sitcom for John Larroquette yeah I um, remember visiting you on site you were regular on that one too as a right tell us about that and also this business about the kind of hybrid thing about improv director for quick wits and Wayne Brady this Larroquette show was a straight up writing job and Steve Atinsky and I were were writing partners together. And that taught me a lot about just being in a writer's room and how, how writers talk about actors, which was a was an amazing wake-up call. And that led to lots of other stuff. But the um, directing hybrid stuff was about that I had had experience of scripted television, being a writer, and I had all of this improv experience, directing improv and being an improv. And when these hybrid shows started to pop up, they needed somebody who understood both worlds because you have to get the story going and you have to look at what the outline that the writers have written. At the same time, you have to be able to get the best improv out of actors who were great improvisers and sometimes who were not. It was very interesting to direct real straight actors who were being asked to improvise because they had to think about it in a way that, you know, most improvisers don't have to think about. So that was fantastic. I, I love directing those shows and, and I got to work with some really, really talented people. I'd like to do more of that. That it's it's yeah. so much fun. It talks here about sons and daughters. Tell us about that particular experience. That was one of these hybrids, right? Yeah. In fact, it was basically um, Modern Family before Modern Family. Mm -hmm. It was uh, Fred Goss created the show and it was the, basically three branches of his family with all of the various relationships of somebody's dating that guy and husband and wife who are 
the patriarchy, matriarchy of the family. And he had a great sort of ensemble cast, just like Modern Family, but it was a hybrid. It was just like Curb Your Enthusiasm. They would write an outline of what the the show should be. And they had some really good writers on that show. Yeah. And it was literally my first job. It was ABC Network, single camera, hybrid comedy. And that was my first DGA job. The very first scene I directed, Doug, was with a five-year-old and a six-year-old because they were cross-boarding the show. So I was shooting at the end of somebody else's day. And that was my first thing. And I remember I, w- I was far away from them, from the kids, because of cameras, and I was ducking to get back to set to give them some notes. And then I, I stood up in the middle and went, cut, because I could say cut. I was such an idiot. I was trying to avoid being seen by the camera. And then the epiphany of going, dude, you're the director. You can just say cut. <laughs> um, but it was fun. It was fun. A little baptism of fire, ha- having your first scene be two small children, but it was a lot of fun. And then you having been a child actor many years before, too. So you probably had a little bit of simpatico there, too. Yeah, because there were a few kids, teenagers as well, in on that, on that show. And, you know, it's the same thing that I wanted when I was, you know, 14 or 15. It's just talk to me. Do not slow things down or massage it. Just, you know, be straight. You know, it's always been hard to bring improv to television, and Whose Line is in any way managed to be fairly successful, but you had a couple of shows, uh, Quick Wits, you've directed imp- some stuff for with Wayne Brady. The Wayne Brady show, of course, has been for years. Wayne Brady was also with Los Angeles Theater Sports, and you worked with him. I actually was one of his sons on a Shakespeare and Unscripted thing, myself and Jeff. Jeff was also a son, so I was the less favored son of Wayne Brady at the time. Tell us about working with Wayne and doing some of that unscripted stuff there. Well, I had gone out on the road with Wayne. Wayne had a small little group of guys who he would call on when he did improv gigs out in the world. You know, he did Vegas a bunch. And Jonathan Mangum still is, you know, his sidekick on um, Let's Make a Deal. Sometimes if it was a bigger deal, a bigger gig, Jeff Tarson and I went with him and did an East Coast tour. And I played with him for years at festivals and then when he was with Lats, what have you. And we know each other really well. And going out on tour with him, kind of helped that relationship. So when he had a variety show and wanted to add improv to it, he brought me in and I was writing sketches, but the majority of my job, 90% of my job was to manage and direct the improv part of the show, which was before I started directing hybrid stuff. So it was my first taste of, you know, people coming up and going, what color would you like the set, sir? You know, and these interesting choices that you have to make. He had some really good improvisers on that show with him, including Jonathan. Uh, And it was like being a kid in a candy store. Like we built a sideways set so that he and Jonathan can do a sideways scene. Oh, great. We built a whole set on its side and then shot it from up above. And then we did a paintball. I remember arguing with I think it was ABC. I can't remember what network it was, but I remember gently trying to persuade standards and practices that it was okay to shoot these guys to shoot each other with paintball guns. Because they were doing like scene without the letter E. And if you said something with an E, you got shot with the paintball gun. But they were like, no, no, we can't shoot people. I'm going, yes, yes, we can. It'll be fun. Yeah. So in a short period of time, I went from directing the improv to, you know, then sort of graduating into directing hybrid TV, which is fantastic. 
I guess now it's been about 15 years that Impro Theater has been in around 15, 17 years, maybe. 17. This is where I wanted to bring us bring us back to this. In a lot of ways, one of your big achievements in the improv world has been doing long form and turning it into an art form in an ensemble that really, as far as I'm concerned, does state-of-the-art improv. This past summer, COVID summer, I was all signed up to come down for a week, and I'll do this as soon as it's possible again, to spend a week with you guys just sitting at the knees of one of the great companies <laughs> around. And uh, Impro Theater, for those who don't know, do a variety of long-form genre stuff. Chekhov Unscripted, Jane Austen Unscripted, Shakespeare Unscripted, Fairy Tales Unscripted, The Western Unscripted, etc. Sondheim Unscripted. And recently, you've even done Twilight Zone kind of stuff. You basically do a whole improvised play over an evening. Uh, tell us about the origins of uh, Impro Theater how it developed and some of your favorite stuff. The Impro Theater kind of developed after uh, L.A. Theater Sports. Uh, as you know, L.A. Theater Sports had a space in the Valley, and it be kind of became unmanageable. Tracy Burns was the artistic director, then Floyd Van Buskirk, uh, and then it, it just kind of ran its course, and nobody wanted to run the building. And I had been off uh, with Edie and Brian Lohman in Vegas, and before that, Brian and I had been in doing Life Game with the Improbable guys in New York. So I'd been away from L.A. on and off for two, three years. And when we came back, Joe McGinley, who had moved down here with Steve Karen, her husband, Steve Karen, in 98 or 99, had kind of was helping to sort of keep the legend going, keep the company going. So we kind of had a very small group of people who wanted to do and I don't know if I would call it long form anymore. I mean, at the time we called it long form, but I think we just, we wanted to do unscripted theater. We'd all gone to drama school. We'd all wanted our parents to feel good about the money they shelled out for drama school. <laughs> so we started to slowly look at doing Shakespeare. Uh, Paul Rogan had moved over from London and had the idea of doing Jane Austen unscripted. And Tracy and then Brian and me had taught a little bit at Pepperdine and then Tracy was teaching at Pepperdine. So, and I had taught at USC. So we had some younger people who were in the mix. Uh, Michelle Spears taught at Harvard Westlake, or still does. So we had access to these younger actors and wanted to try and do something that was not who's liney, not, not, nothing against who's line, nothing against theater sports or any of the other, or the Herald or anything like that. But we wanted to do theater without a script. And we wanted to, if, you know, Tennessee Williams was alive, we'd want to be able to do a play that if he was sitting in the audience, he would recognize as being an homage to him. Not a parody, but an homage. Uh, and so that's that's how Impro Theater got started. And a much smaller company. Uh, we didn't have a theater to speak of. We just were sort of touring L.A. County in different places. And it grew from there. And early on, maybe four or five years in, maybe not early, early on, Dale Franzen, who was the artistic director of the Broad in Santa Monica, said you should come do Jane Austen at Christmas. This is the first year since 2008, I think, that we haven't done Jane Austen at the Broad. So uh, it, it very quickly became this different thing. And we still did theater sports and we still went to improv festivals and we weren't shunning short form improv. It's just we really wanted to do something where we could use our acting chops and create real theater in front of an audience that wasn't written. And we were very lucky in that the makeup of that group, Floyd, 
Brian, uh, Lisa Fredrickson, Edie, Carrie, Michelle. I mean, everybody, everybody's still here. The only person who's retired is Floyd. Floyd Van Buskirk, we're speaking of, the the man who taught Rebecca Stockley improv yeah. back then. He said, yeah, I just want to be a musician. That, that's another thing that we're, we're dealing with now, which could be a whole other podcast. We never intended to build an institution when we started when we started Theater Splats or when we started Impro, we just wanted to play together. And then we thought, well, we want to pass these skills along. Oh, we want to give work to our talented folks and give them teaching jobs. So we've built an institution by accident. And we're having to sort of look at this institution in this time with regards to diversity, equity, and inclusion, and what it means to be an insular theater company that has a school and a community, and how do we grow and diversify and continue that that level of quality? Because uh, I think we're one of the few places on the planet that do this stuff at this level. For those who are listening to this Snap Sessions podcast, if you're anywhere near Los Angeles or have a chance to see Impro Theater on the road, I highly recommend these genre pieces. One of the ones I would like to fly down for is the Twilight Zone or the Western one, too. Some of the modern stuff. The Jane Austen, the Shakespeare, the Chekhov, they're all outstanding. They really are. And I will be coming to school as soon as this virus goes away. I highly recommend that to our listeners. Well, there's so. streaming, there's streaming shows Doug, that yeah, on, that's true. on Twitch, we're at Impro underscore TV, Impro TV. And there are, for most of 2019, we were recording Twilight Zone-esque uh, three camera streaming shows called The Portal. So oh, yeah. There are over 100 episodes. Yeah, 100 episodes of The Portal. And if you go to ImproTheater.com, I-M-P-R-O-T-H-E-T-R-E.com, you can see links to that, uh, to our streaming. And also we're on Vimeo. Uh, there's tons of stuff on Vimeo and YouTube, sh old shows, as well as some of the streaming shows. So if you want to see an ensemble that you wouldn't want to pitch to, in other words, the depth of that batting order in terms of improv experience and excellence, that's a great one to go to. I also want to talk about your experience as a teacher. You've done TED Talks. You're coming out with your second book coming up with Jeffrey Katzman. You've taught at UCLA, USC, Pepperdine, you mentioned, DreamWorks and Disney. I've had the good fortune to be in many of your classes as, as a student. You've also done a TED Talk. Uh, tell us about uh, some of your teaching highlights. And uh, I did a TED Talk, was it in the Napa Valley? Yeah, yeah, it was a TEDx talk in Napa Valley. Uh, and, then, and Brian Lohman did one the next year. They had invited me and Brian, I think, to do a TEDx talk. And so I feel very strongly, and this is part of the reason why I've written two books with Jeff Katzman. I feel very strongly that most people <laughs> would be much better off if they took an improv class. And that's not to say performing or being on stage or being funny or being clever, but just the basic tools of narrative, I feel it's important to say narrative improvisation, I think will help you get through the day. And so what I was talking about in my, in my TEDx talk was teaching kids, making improv a requirement. Uh, you know, I know algebra was a requirement for me in high school. I still don't understand algebra. Uh, <laughs> and I understand it's very important, but more important and maybe more a utility skill that is probably more valuable to more people is 
uh, learning to tell your story, learning to engage with other people. And all that stuff that you kind of fumble through your first couple of years of college, if you're fortunate enough to go to college where you're learning how to function in society and do your own laundry, so much of that anxiety can be removed when you have some improv skills. Like in Canada, and I say this in the talk, one of the things that always impressed me was kids could letter in high school in improv. And I was like, well, that's fantastic because then the kids who, you know, aren't into sports, but still want to engage can learn those skills. I mean, so many people take improv classes to meet people. You know, there's so many uh, of our students in the community at, at Impro Theater who this is like book club or a bowling league to them. They, they're they interested in coming and laughing and creating. They don't want to be on whose lines that anyway. They want to have fun and see their friends and, you know, and go for a drink afterwards or whatever it is. But it's a, it's more about engaging with people uh, than it is about performing. And being able to teach at all those places you listed, I've taught a lot of times, like I've taught at Duke and UC Santa Barbara. I've taught playwriting and screenwriting programs there about those skills for writers. But at the same time, the next week I would be teaching at DreamWorks and talking about character development or talking about how to be in a meeting and how to brainstorm in a way where you're actually being heard and you are really listening. Because most people, if anybody's done any time in sort of corporate America, they're used to waiting for your mouth to stop moving so they can say the thing that they've been thinking about while they haven't been listening to you. <laughs> and, and when you say that to a group of people, and, I, and it could be animators, it could be people who work in HR or sales or whatever it is. But when you say that, everybody has had that experience. Everybody is really good at not listening. Uh, everybody's really good at worrying about their own ideas. And really, if you think about what ideally brainstorming is, it's about building on ideas and making mistakes uh, so that you can go do the thing that you want to do. But we're all so scared and frightened, I think, about expressing our ideas or making mistakes. And that's the, that's the joy of, of improvisation is mistakes as opportunity. Uh, and Jeff and I have been talking about these books for 20 years. We wanted to go teach at Esalen back in the day. And we finally, five years ago, wrote the first one four or five years ago. Now, you and, mentioned uh, Jeffrey Katzman, who's your co-writer on Life Unscripted, using improv principles to get unstuck, boost confidence, and transform your life. You guys got together, you say, five years ago or so, and Jeff was a former student of yours, wasn't he? Jeff was in LATS. Jeff was a theater sports guy ah. way back in the day when he was doing his residency at the VA here out in Westwood. He's a so psychiatrist, he, right? Yes. And he was taking theater sports games and doing it with guys who were suffering from PTSD. He was working with vets and instantly saw how engaged, otherwise challenging patients became when they started playing together. And so we talked about it for a long time. And he's taken improv classes since he was in theater sports. He now lives in Albuquerque, where he works at a teaching hospital. So he's been using this because he not only has to teach, but he also has to care. And with his patients and with his students, these types of engagement, of improvisational engagement tools are critical in terms of making or helping people to feel heard. 
you know, whether you're dealing with somebody who's suffering from trauma or you're dealing from somebody who wants to learn something new, these skills apply to both of those areas of learning. And the new book is about ensemble, right? It's about working together as a group. Tell us about the new book, which is coming out by June 1st. Yeah, June 1st. I wish it was coming out now because I think when we started writing it, I think we were three weeks into writing it when the, the shutdown happened. We've been talking about the epidemic of loneliness in this country. I'm sure it's in other Western countries as well. So we, we wanted to write a book that was about getting people to engage with the world because it's so easy now, as people have found out, it's so easy not to leave your house. You know, a, a lot of people who can afford to do that, not obviously there are tons of people who, who have to leave the house for work, but it's so easy to become insular and siloed and, and not really engage. And you, you turn around and you go, oh, oh my God, I, I haven't talked to another human being in a week. And so the idea of just some very simple improv skills that people can play with to learn to, to engage more rather than combat loneliness, engage with other people in a way that's resonant. It's become so important now to connect. And connections, I think people, one of the things we're, t we're talking about is connections, not just, hey, how you doing? And superfluous uh, water cooler talk or whatever it is, but actually listening to somebody else. If you think about how good you feel when somebody else seems to be listening to you, when they, when they seem to be engaged and they're really paying attention, it's like a kid who's acting out, is just acting out to get a moment where they get a connection with the parent, where they're seen. Mm -hmm. And those skills are not taught in school. You're not taught those things. And taking an improv class, it may be a small step, but it's, it is a step towards better engagement, better listening, better seeing of other people. So much of the last nine months has been about people not being seen and not being heard. So we hope that this book, Ensemble, is a, a few steps towards resonant engagement and really seeing people and, and one of the things that goes through both books and one of the things that when either of us teach or when we teach together, we talk about is that improv is just mindfulness on your feet. If, if you think about it, people begin to freak out. Oh, I haven't been listening to the boss. Oh my God, he's going to notice that I'm not listening to him or she, she's going to notice that I'm not listening to her. And really, it's just like the breath in meditation. You know, you go back to the breath if your brain starts to, your mind starts to go away. You come back to, I come back to Doug, I come back to Doug, I come back to Doug and be present because in that level of engagement, both of us uh, can be here. Both of us can be present and not start to spin out into our own little anxieties. I know that when things are good, it's when I'm present. Dan, that's a great note to uh, head towards the end here. And I know you've been married to the fabulous Edie Patterson now for, what, <laughs> 17 years? Something like that? Yeah, something like that. Edie and Dan are a, a comedy couple of the, of the finest, an improv couple of the finest way. Dan, I want to thank you very much. You're one of my favorite guys I've ever worked with on stage. You're also a charismatic guy and a great coach and and a great example, I think, uh, for people out there in the improv world. I have enjoyed being your blocking back whenever I've had the opportunity. <laughs> and it's great to have a chance to interview you and to talk about your career and your life. 
Thanks, Dan. Well, Doug, thank you. I like to think of us as the William Floyd and Ricky Waters of our generation. (laughs) That's great, Dan. Thanks to our artist of the show, actor, writer, director, Dan O'Connor of Impro Theater in Los Angeles. Our production team includes tech meister Marshall Brown, jack of all trades Ken Krause, writer interviewer Doug Nunn, and our logo designer Daniel Stieglitz. Don't be an airhead. Get out there and do something creative. Dabble in something that inspires you. Read something challenging. Expand your perspective. Our aim is to give you an international outlook on the arts and a critical look at world politics. Salute the power of creativity and foster international solidarity. Make Mother Earth great again. Thanks for listening to Snap Sessions. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe to our podcast at patreon.com forward slash snap sessions. We depend on the support of listeners like you to cover our monthly podcast and transcription service costs. Please join us as a Snap Session supporter. We have support levels from Little Snapper to Snappus Maximus. Thanks to all of our generous supporters. 